0: Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. So glad to see you all again. Isn't it nice that it's nicer outside, a little bit warmer? Uh, Also, welcome to those of you who are watching us uh, online. So good to have you here this morning. Hey, we're uh, starting a new teaching series today. Uh, we're going to be doing a deep dive over the next, actually, probably about three months uh, into the book of Philippians. Hopefully, we're going to get things finished up uh, by Easter as we walk through this text together. And uh, I was kind of hoping, uh, you know, I sent a video out on Realm. I realize not all of you are on, are on Realm, but to everybody who's somebody, of course, is on Realm. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I I, I sent a little bit of a video and said, hey, would you consider bringing your actual paper Bibles to the gathering this morning? I was wondering if if during this teaching series, I could invite you to join with me in kind of kicking it old school. To actually have a a tangible, physical, paper Bible in your hand as we go into the text together. Because we're going to be doing a deep dive into the text. And so I want to invite you to consider moving away from digital and going back to being a little bit analog with us uh, during this teaching series. Because here's the thing. Uh, It's Shane Hipps. He wrote a book. It's called Flickering Pixels. And he talks about uh, the effects of digital technology and whatnot. And one of the things he talks about in the book is the uh, distancing effect that digital technology can have on us. Uh, the reality is, is that the more advanced the technology you have and you're, you're viewing and you're looking through, the more removed you find yourself from the original text or the original person. Uh, so we know this to be true intuitively. For example, uh, how many of you would say it feels more meaningful to get a handwritten card from somebody than an email? right? And, and part of that has to do with the technology. Writing is a technology. Pen and paper is a technology. But how many you of would say, well, it's actually speaking someone the face-to-face is actually even more meaningful than just getting a card from somebody. So the reality is that technology sometimes distances us from the text. It distances us from the original authors and whatnot. So I'm want to challenge you to, during this series, to do something a little bit crazy, to actually walk into a church with a physical paper Bible in your hand, and dive with us into Philippians together. It's up to you. But this, this morning, if you want a Bible, we actually have a stack of them at the back as we're going through the text. Just uh, put up your hand, and uh, actually, I don't think we were ready for that. You can slip out to the back yourself and help yourself to a paper Bible. In the first gathering, we had people uh, handing them out, but in this one, you're just too many. So if you want a paper Bible, they're at the back there, and uh, just slip. Uh, Slip, yeah, there we go. There we go. I see that hand. Good. All right, awesome. So I'll leave that up to you uh, uh, to do t- during the gathering. Anyway, uh, one of the also things that you'll notice, we have bulletin notes. Is you pull out the bulletin notes, you'll notice on the back page of the bulletin notes, uh, we have something there that's called takeout. What I'm hoping during this series is that you'll actually have something to take home with you to think more deeply and reflectively about what we're talking about and perhaps even to put something into practice uh, based on what we talked about today. So every week throughout this series, you're going to have some takeout that you can take with you and take home and to put it into practice. So, I'll give you a chance to look at that a little bit later. But I'm hoping as you, you know, you don't just throw that piece of paper away, but after the gathering today, or maybe when you get home, you'll look at the takeout and uh, you'll put some of those uh, things into practice and you'll reflect more deeply with us. Because we want this to be something that we can do together as the people of God in community. Wouldn't that be great? If we're all deep into the book of Philippians, we're learning from it, we're growing from it, and we can share this with each other. That's the goal. Okay, so um, Karen and I have started to do something that I'm ashamed of. And quite frankly, I'm a little bit embarrassed to admit uh, this morning. Um, But, you know, I thought today would be a good day to get this off my chest. Uh, I want to thank you in advance for, for being gracious. As we say, we're a community where it's okay not to be okay. So, you know, sometimes we're just not okay, and Karen and I sometimes just aren't okay. So here we go. Karen and I, have started to build puzzles together. I know, right? Like, that's lame. That's like, that's like boring. And, and it's a good indicator that Karen and I really need to get a life, right? If there was ever any hope of me becoming hip and cool, it is now gone. It has left the building. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Here's how it all got started. Okay, so it's Christmas. Uh, we're, we're, we're home in Mushta for the holidays, visiting her parents. And, and I'm walking through the dining room. As I'm walking through the dining room, I see a number of people huddled around the table. And they're building a puzzle together. And I'm thinking to myself, that is lame. You guys are going to need to get a life. There's far more exciting things you can do in life than build a puzzle. Who does that, right? And so I'm watching and I'm watching and watching. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if somebody drugged me. I don't know if somebody knocked me out. But five minutes later, I found myself up to the table, double fisting, meaty paws gripping two pieces of puzzle my hunting and gathering instincts at full throttle, and I'm building this thing with them together. Well, fast forward a couple of weeks, and uh, it's, it's like a week ago, and it's like minus 40 in Edmonton. Remember that? That was cold. I mean, that was ruthlessly bitter cold. Thank you, climate change. Um, anyway, um, Karen and I were just kind of like driving around, and, and, and we're doing like some errands or whatnot, and we just kind of look at each other and says, you know, let's, let's not just go home and like just watch Netflix tonight. Why don't we do something different? Why don't, we, why don't we build a puzzle together? I don't know who said it. Maybe it was probably her. Okay. But I would say, okay, we're going to do that. <laughs> now, I know like a lot of people make babies during the cold snap, but we enjoy being empty nesters, right? That train has left the station. So uh, we decided instead that we were going to build a puzzle. Uh, and like we stayed up late into the night finishing our first puzzle like we just could not stop and then two days later we started another puzzle and we started building that puzzle and we completed that puzzle Uh, we're just waiting to figure out what's our third puzzle ultimately gonna be listen let me say this I am a growing fan of this ancient analog technology you know what I discovered I discovered that you can actually listen to music while you're building a puzzle you can have a conversation with somebody while you're building a puzzle, you can, you can even just like kind of zone out and just think about your life while you're building a puzzle. But the one thing you cannot do while you're building a puzzle is surf on your phone. You have to put it down and put it away because you just can't do the thing. And one of the things I discovered is I suppose that puzzles share this in common with smartphones. Puzzles are like your own little dopamine dispenser, Right? For us, in our culture, to get our dopamine fixes, we're scrolling, and we're liking, and we're seeing how people like us. And so it's this addictive dopamine dispenser. But you know what? Every time you find a piece of the puzzle, and it finds a place in the puzzle, and you put it in there, it's like, boom, dopamine. You just feel so good with every single little piece. Now, the most satisfying piece of the puzzle is the last piece of the puzzle. You know, when Karen and I put that last piece of the puzzle in, we high-five each other. We just, Koo! ah, it just feels so good. And, and I'll let you know, like, I, I, because I know it gives her a huge sense of satisfaction and joy and delight, I let Karen put in the last piece of the puzzle. It's also because I'm terrified of her. And you, I have no idea what will happen if I was the one to kind of put that piece in place. You know, when I think about puzzles... I think that puzzles are a lot like your spiritual life in Christ. See, when you first begin a puzzle, you have this kind of jumbled, confused mess of pieces kind of in a heap. But soon enough, the pieces of your life start to get turned right side up in Christ. And then what you do is eventually you form a border. And a border kind of frames the rest of the puzzle and how you're going to absolutely put it together. You have a frame for your life. And from there, you basically spend a lifetime connecting pieces, putting things together until... Well, this captivating and compelling image just starts to emerge. Except, of course, it's not you doing all the work. It's, it's Jesus working in you and working through you to transform you into this compelling image. The only challenge is, is that we never fully complete the puzzle here in this life. That we never actually get to put that final piece in conclusion, in that puzzle piece. And the best is yet to come. This morning, this idea is something I want us to explore together in our message. I want to talk about how how God is completing his work in us, how God is framing and shaping and putting those pieces of the puzzle together so that we might become this compelling and captivating image. And so we're going to get there, but to get there, we have to first of all go a little bit into the text at the beginning. And I want us to start at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 and uh, look at this book together. So let me start by reading Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just stop here really quickly and give you a bit of a background to the book of Philippians since we're in the introduction. So let me make a few uh, observations out of the introduction. First of all, uh, Philippians is a letter. That's what the word epistle actually means. The word epistle, we, you might see, hear the word epistle a lot in, in, in church. It means letter. Second, uh, the letter was written to the church in Philippi, to a group of people who lived in the city of Philippi. And it was probably a, a pretty sophisticated church because it had leadership set in place. And the letter was written from Paul and Timothy. Now, the letter wasn't technically written from Paul and Timothy. Uh, it's just that Timothy was with Paul as Paul wrote the letter. So Paul decided he was going to include Timothy in the letter. So the question for us this morning, well, who's Paul? Now, if, if you've been around church for a while, you might know that Paul was an apostle. And the word apostle literally means sent one. So Paul, the apostle, was sent by God to go throughout the entire Roman era, uh, uh, Empire. Huge span, uh, span of land in his day. And he was sent by God to go and proclaim the good news about the risen Jesus and his coming kingdom. And so that's what Paul did. And as Paul went went around to these different places, often on foot, sometimes by boat, but as he went around and proclaimed Jesus, he would sometimes plant churches in cities. He didn't plant all of them. Other churches were planted by other people, other followers of Jesus. But he ultimately became to be uh, one of the great leaders over many of these churches, which was his role as an apostle. Now, Timothy was just simply Paul's apprentice. Timothy accompanied Paul as he went along on several of these missionary journeys uh, throughout the Roman Empire. Now, what's not mentioned here in the introduction is Paul's return address. You know, in most of our letters, paper letters, you see a return address somewhere up, somewhere up in the top. There's no return address on this letter. Uh, so the question is, where is Paul writing from? Well, what we discover as we read through the letter is that Paul's actually writing from prison. And very likely, Paul's writing from a prison in Rome. Uh, He would probably have been under house arrest, which means that he would have been locked up in a a home. Guards would have been at the door. Paul would have probably been chained to the floor somewhere in, in the house. And he could not leave the house, but people could visit him. Family and friends could come to him, could provide him with supplies or spend time with him. And the reason why Paul was in prison was ultimately for preaching the gospel, for doing what Paul does. And it's a really long story, but the essence is that those who opposed the gospel had Paul imprisoned on some trumped-up bogus charges. And in order for Paul to escape from them, and in order for Paul to get to Rome so he could talk about Jesus, which he always wanted to do, Paul decided he was going to appeal to Caesar, which is his right as a Roman citizen. In other words, he says, I don't want to be tried in any of these courts. I want to be tried in Caesar's court, the highest court, because that's my right as a Roman citizen. And so, off to Rome, Paul went. And here we find Paul, he's writing this letter to the Philippians, and he wrote several letters to the, uh, other, some other churches, which are known as the prison epistles or the prison letters. This is one of Paul's letters, and he's writing to the church in Philippi. So now Paul is in Rome, and Paul does not know whether or not he's going to live or die. There is a very good chance that Paul, when he faces Caesar, could be executed for preaching the gospel. This is the backstory of this letter. Let's keep reading. So, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So so now Paul begins this letter in, in, in the way that he begins most of his letters. He begins with praise and thanksgiving. You'll find that in, in most of the letters he's written. And, and what should stand out right away as we read the text is Paul's posture of prayer. Did you notice that Paul is praying with joy? You know, one of the things we're going to discover as we do a deep dive into Philippians over the next number of weeks is that this is a big theme in the book of Philippians. Joy, rejoicing. It's, you'll find it all throughout Paul's letter. But I'm sure that the, the irony isn't lost on us this morning. Because here was Paul, he's chained up, he's a world away from the people he cares about. He could be facing execution, and yet the posture in which he's praying for the people of God way far away in Philippi is with joy. So the question is, what was bringing Paul joy? What was Paul so happy about? Well, two things that we get from these first uh, few verses. First of all, Paul had fond memories of the church. Second of all, they were partners with him in the gospel, See, the thing of it is, Paul had actually planted the church in Philippi. This was one of the church that, churches that he had planted. Um, the first person that he introduced to Jesus when he was in Philippi, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. I hope you do later on. The first person, though, he met was Lydia. She was a wealthy merchant. She discovered Jesus through, through Paul's testimony and, and Paul's proclamation. And then she invited Paul and his companions to come and stay at her house. And so he, they did. And when they stayed at Lydia's house, they began to share Jesus with other people. And other people soon began to follow after Jesus. But then, Paul was arrested, and Paul was beaten for doing something that I think most of us wouldn't actually do on any given day. Paul decided to cast an evil spirit out of a young girl who was being exploited by her owners. And the spirit came out, the owners lost their source of income, so they said, oh, we've got to arrest Paul. And then Paul got arrested. Paul got arrested, he spends his night overnight in jail. And you might remember the story, the earthquake happened. God busted Paul out of jail. And then Paul led the Philippian jailer to Jesus. And then the very next day, the magistrates came and they realized we shouldn't have actually locked up Paul. And so they, they escort Paul out of the prison. They apologize to him for the way that they've treated him. And Paul's sitting here, he's writing this letter. He's looking back. And he's like, oh, good times. <laughs> yeah, like fond memories. I remember those days. Those were so awesome. He's praying and remembering with joy. But Paul also prayed with joy because of the church's partnership in the gospel. See, as we read later in the letter, we're going to discover that the church in Philippi had been supporting Paul's ministry for a very long time. So it's not like they hadn't heard from Paul in a while. They knew he was in Rome. And when they discovered that he was in prison in Rome, they sent a man to them named Epaphroditus who came to Paul and he brought a huge lump of cash to Paul, to help support him while he was in prison. Because, listen, back then, uh, you only went to prison until you faced trial. There were no long-term prison sentences. The only time person went to prison in that day was just in time to face a trial. And during that time, there was no social safety net. Nobody was going to feed you. Nobody was going to send you razors, okay? There was no chance for you to get a college education. While you're waiting in prison, all you could do was trust in the benevolence and the goodness of other people. And so the only way that Paul could survive in prison is if people showed up with money or with food to help care for Paul. That's the day and age in which he lived. And that's what the Philippians did. So Paul's like really deeply connected to this church. I mean, he loves them. He knows them. And he prays for them with joy. You know, when I think about that, I think about my prayers. And I think about how I pray for family, how I pray for you, how I pray for this neighborhood, how I pray for our city and our world. And I ask myself the question, do I pray with joy? Like when I consider what God is doing in the world today, what God is doing in us and in my family, what's my posture? You thought about that for yourself. Do You pray with joy and delight as you come to Jesus and bring people before him. Well, it's just a thought. Let's keep reading. Now we get into the meat of the message for today. Let's continue reading it at, uh, at verse 6. And Paul says this, um, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness. of God. So Paul, Paul is continuing to describe the source of his joy, and he's joyful because he's confident, and he's confident that God will complete, he'll continue and complete the good work that he's already begun in the Philippians. So this work, you remember, began when Paul first preached the gospel in Philippi. This work was continuing in the Philippians' support of Paul in his ministry, and he's saying, you know, one day, this good work will be completed when Jesus comes back, when he returns. That's when the final piece of the puzzle will be put into place and your lives will be perfect. How many of you today know that you are a work in progress? You know, why don't you take a moment, you know, talk to the person beside you, look them up, look them down, look them in the eye and say, you know what, you're a real work in progress. Give me a minute to do that. Go ahead. Yeah. I said you're a work in progress, not you're a real piece of work, okay? (laughs) That's totally different. Now, just as with the Philippians, God wants to complete his work in us. He wants to complete his work in you. So what is this work that God is completing? Well, Paul actually elaborates on this in verses 9 to 11. And this is a really, really, really long sentence. And sometimes Paul will do this in a number of his letters. In the Greek, like the sentence just goes on and on and on. And then we translate it into English and we're trying to break it down into parts. So it's a little bit more palatable for modern readers. But Paul will often do these really run-on long sentences. Verse 9 to 11 is a great example of this. So it's a long sentence, but it's also a bit of a convoluted sentence. There's a lot of clauses and sub-clauses in it that it makes it hard to make sense of it. So, let me just summarize it for us this morning. Here's what the work looks like that God wants to do in us. This work is abounding in smart love that produces Christ's character. God wants us to be abounding in smart love that produces Christ's character. What do I mean by that? Well, that's the summary, but we still need to unpack it a little bit. So what I've done is I've actually put together a diagram, a map, uh, for these few verses that I hope will be helpful for us. It's in your bulletin, but it's up here on screen. Um, And Let me just talk about a few things from this diagram. You'll notice a few things from this diagram. First of all, there is a why. Why does God want to complete his work in us? Ultimately, the reason why God wants to complete his work in us is for his own glory and his own praise. Now, is God narcissistic? No, he is just God. He is the greatest being imaginable, perfect love, perfect goodness, perfect holiness, infinite power. And as it turns out, God is the creator, and we are the created. And he, our creation, the creation, was designed to give God praise and glory. That's what we were created for. And so what God is doing is he's simply giving us an opportunity to live according to our design. And do you know the greatest joy that you experience in life actually comes By living according to your design, not living contrary to your design. But second, you'll notice there is the how. How does God complete his work in us? Well, Paul says it's through Christ. It's only possible through Jesus. See, apart from Jesus, we are dead and powerless in our sins, the Bible teaches. But through Jesus, we have been declared righteous. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And we can live righteously because he sets us free from the power of sin and he gives his Holy Spirit to us who empowers us to live the life that God intended us for us to live. So that's the how. It is through Christ. But finally, there is the what. What is the work that God wants to complete in us? Ultimately, he wants to grow Christ's character in us. This is what Paul calls the fruit of righteousness, God wants us to become like Jesus in every way. He wants us to have his character. So this means becoming the right kind of person who does the right things for the right reason. That's what character is. Becoming the right kind of person who does the right things for the right reasons. So how do we get there? Well, Paul says that ultimately this this happens through abounding love. Paul is praying for the Philippians, and he's saying, I'm praying that you will have a love that is increasing, a love that is growing, a love that is overflowing. But you'll notice in the text that Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just pray for love, kind of as an idea or in a general sense, but he prays for a very specific kind of love. Paul is praying for smart love. Now, what is smart love? Well, this kind of love is essentially growing in moral insight and knowledge, Paul says. It asks, what's the best way that I can love God? What's the best way that I can love people? This is the kind of love that seeks to discover God's will. So it seeks to say, God, what are the things that you love? God, what are the things you, are, you hate? And how can I align my heart with your moral will, with what you ultimately want? So it is a different kind of love. It is, it is smart love. Now, smart love understands this. It understands that that you can't do the right thing if you don't know the right thing. You know, those of you here who have young kids know what I'm talking about. You want your kids to know what the right thing to do is so that ultimately they will do the right thing. I mean, if you've got little kids, you're teaching them all the time. Do this, don't do that. I want you to know what's right. That's why you teach them to know, for example, to say please and thank you, or maybe don't throw hot soup on your sister, that's a bad idea, or uh, share your toys, or, or, or don't put your fork in the toaster, okay? So you want your kids to know what is right, so they ultimately do what, right, what is right. And if they do what is right long enough and often enough, maybe then they will become the right kind of person, a person of character. Now I want to change gears for just a minute here, um, for a, a, just a short detour conversation. I think it's important to point out that, that God's idea of love, the biblical concept of love, is often out of step with our cultural definitions of love. And, and it's, it's, it's important to talk about the difference because what we, we sometimes um, are in danger of doing is importing a cultural definition of love and imposing that definition of love on the biblical text. But when the Bible talks about love, it it, it often is is, is very different and out of step with how our culture talks about love. So I just want to point out some of the fundamental differences here. You know, it's a very popular notion to see in our culture love as more of a feeling or love is more of an affection. And love is often tapped into our drives. It taps into our passions. It's tapped into our emotions. And in our culture, of course, love is highly romanticized. And we've imported this and we've inherited it hundreds of years ago from the Romantic era. So the very fact that we talk about falling in love betrays our definition of love, right? Because, I mean, I can fall in a pit, or I can fall in a pile of doggy poo, but I, how do I fall in love? Like, how does that happen? And what it says is that we believe that love is something that can trap us. Love is something that can control us. Something that just overwhelms us is our understanding of love. And that's, that's speaking about affections and passions and whatnot, okay? The idea of love in our culture is also a very, very, very powerful force. So many would say that uh, love is actually becoming the most common source of our meaning and worth in our culture. There's a philosopher from from Yale who wrote a great book, History, uh, Love, a History. His name is Simon May. And he tracks the history of love from antiquity to the modern era. And uh, what he says is he describes how love has become almost a new religion in our present day. That we, our idea of love is, is something that is so very different than the love of the ancients. And here's what he says. He says, human love is now tasked with achieving what once only divine love was thought capable of, to be our ultimate source of meaning and happiness. So in the book, he talks about how, how, how love in our culture has, has taken on almost these godlike characteristics and qualities. We think that love is the solution for all of our problems. Uh, we believe that love kind of delivers us and transforms us into this kind of superior state or this euphoric state. Um, love is, is actually the most common theme of movies, of love songs, of presidential speeches. We're a culture that is in love with being in love. And we might not say this publicly, we might not say this out loud, but secretly we might, not, might think this. That if somebody is not involved somehow in a romantic relationship, then they are a person who does not have value and does not have meaning in this life. They're a second-class citizen. That's our cultural understanding of love. Highly feeling generated, romanticized. So we're a culture that's confused about love, and in our culture it's both distorted and disordered. Now, there's a, there's a saying that, that's uh, actually become very popular in our culture, and you've probably heard it said many times. Is it's, the saying is, love is love. Heard that? Hashtag love is love. And what it essentially means is, is, is that we shouldn't really put any constraints on love. Basically, if you want to love somebody, if you want to be with somebody, then you should have the freedom to do so no matter what. Nobody should judge you. Nobody has the right to say you can't love somebody else. I can love whoever I want to love. I can be in a relationship with whoever I want. Love is love. And what this saying does is it, it essentially combines two very important values. It combines the value of freedom and the value of love, and it puts it together. And let me tell you, our, our culture highly values both of these. Right? Like freedom is huge for us. Love is huge for us. So if love is a God, freedom is a close second. Freedom is almost like, like a demigod to us in our culture. But When we talk about freedom in our culture, we don't just talk about freedom in general. We talk about a very specific type of freedom. We talk about freedom from constraint. So we talk about freedom without boundaries, unfettered freedom. When we think of freedom, we we, we might think of it as as radical autonomy. So it's the freedom to do whatever I want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody. So that's how we understand freedom. So you take that and you combine it with love and you have love is love. But the question is, is, is love is love even a reasonable statement? So let me give you an example. Um, What about Michelle uh, Kobke from Berlin? Michelle believes that she is in love with a Boeing 737 airplane. Uh, She has affectionately named her airplane Schatz, and it's the same airplane, so it's not a model. It's this one particular airplane. And she's in a long-distance relationship with Schatz, but ultimately she hopes uh, that one day she will be able to get married to Schatz and she'll be able to live in a hangar with him. I'm not making this up. This is actually really, really true and and kind of sad. And so to keep the the, uh, spark going, she will hug and kiss different parts of the plane that have been kind of ejected and no longer in use on the plane. And she also sleeps with a five-foot replica of the plane just to keep the kind of the heart fires warmed as uh, she's apart from him. So doesn't she have the freedom to simply love whoever or whatever she wants? Now... Of course, we could say, I mean, this is a really extreme example. and uh, Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with you. This is an extreme example. Um, but maybe we should just draw a line. Maybe we should draw a line and say that love is love, but only with uh, inanimate objects. That is, there's an exception. So if it's inanimate object doesn't count, but with actual human beings, then love is love. But I wonder if there are other situations where we might consider drawing a line. Could a 50-year-old male who wants to be with a child say love is love? Could someone say that about someone else's spouse? I'm married to her, but I want to be with her, and that's okay because love is love. Could a man say that in regard to having seven wives? I love all of them, right? Because love is love at the end of the day. So here's the thing is, is every time we draw a line and make that line, and make that exception, and we do that intuitively as human beings. But every time we draw a line, we are eroding the truth of that axiom. We are saying, well, it's not really that true. It's kind of true, but it's not true. So maybe sometimes love is love, but not always necessarily so. But of course, you've probably understood that in that definition of love is love, we're talking about this emotional, romanticized view of love. But it may not necessarily be the biblical understanding of love. And the point I'm just simply trying to make this morning is this, is that we live in a world that is very, very confused about love. And many of the popular definitions that we have of love diverge from the biblical understanding of love, the ancient understanding of love. See, the Bible teaches that God is love and not that love is God. In fact, love is the very nature of who God is. Love flows from his character. If you want to understand love, you simply need to look at God. And Paul prayed that the Philippian church would abound in this kind of love. The word love that he uses is agape in the Greek. And that's the word for love that is most often used to describe God's character of love. The simplest definition of agape is this. It's unconditional. It's unearned favor. So agape love, is, it's, it's other-centered rather than self-centered. Agape love actively seeks the benefit of other people for their own good, not for my own good. So the agape love is not an if kind of love. It's not if you wear that pretty dress, I'll love you. Agape love is not a because kind of love. It's not I love you because you look delicious, okay? Agape love is a love, period. Stamp it, stamp it, no races. I love you, period. It's a different kind of love. And it's not driven then or conditioned by passion or affection or feelings. Sometimes those can be part of it, but that's not what drives it. Agape love instead is sober-minded. It's thoughtful. It's consistent. It's other-focused. And this was the love that sent Jesus into the world. And this was the love that nailed Jesus to the cross. And this is the love that God extends towards you. Towards me. Do you know this morning that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more? Do you know that there's nothing that you have ever done to make God love you less? God loves you completely, bountifully, and unconditionally. And I wonder today, do you simply hold that belief? Or will you let that belief hold you today? You are loved by God his love. You know, Jesus came to teach us how to love. He he came to reorient and to reorder our loves so that we love God first with all of our hearts and all our minds and all of our souls and all of our strength and and that we love our neighbors and also that we learn to love ourselves. And this is what Paul was praying for the Philippians. He's saying, I pray that you would abound more and more in this agape love. Well, how do you do that? How How do you abound in God's love? Because it sounds like it's something that can, we can do more of, or we can grow. Well, first of all, it comes through presence. It comes by receiving Christ's love in our lives, receiving His first free gift of salvation. But it also comes by trusting in His Holy Spirit. By trusting in His Holy Spirit, by drawing near to God, we become more loving. See, the thing about love is love is a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it's the first fruit of the Spirit, which means that if it's a fruit of the Spirit, then it's something that ultimately God grows in us. So it's through presence that we abound in love. But it also comes through practice. See, the thing about love is, is love is a, is, is a virtue. As a matter of fact, it's the greatest of all the virtues. And what are virtues all about? Virtues are all about our character. Remember, becoming the right kind of person who does the right kind of things for the right reason. That's what character is. Virtue is about our character. So the way that we grow in our love ultimately is to practice love. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about, I mean, today I'm going to practice becoming more loving. I'm going to put it into practice. See, when we practice love, what happens is we eventually grow the habit of love. And when we form the habit of love, after a long period of time, it will create in us the character of love. So the goal is to begin to practice love through rituals. James Smith, he, he illustrates this in his book, You Are What You Love, and it's a great book. If you want a good book to read that's going to change your heart and change your mind and your life, this is a good one. So he invites us to imagine it this way. So imagine that you're with a bunch of friends at the top of a hill. It's freshly fallen snow. You've got your toboggans with you, and you're going to go tobogganing down this hill. Um, first, First blush, first chance to do it. Nobody's touched this hill. So the first time you go down the hill, you go on your toboggan, and you go pretty slow because there's no ruts, right? It's just fresh powder, right? But you go pretty slow. But after you're done, you leave a bit of a rut. And then your friend goes. And as your friend goes down the hill, they go and they leave a little bit of a rut. And it kind of overlaps your rut. And then another friend goes and they go down the hill and they leave a little bit of a rut. And it overlaps your rut. Now, what tends to happen is that over time, the snow in those ruts tends to get packed down until there's a nice, smooth groove in the middle. In fact, it becomes so rounded that it becomes difficult to steer your sled out of the path. It's easy to navigate. It's smooth riding. It's a well-worn path. And so what do you do? You just keep going down the middle. You keep going down that middle path because it's easy and it's fast and it's not difficult. Our rituals, our practices, are those initial runs of the toboggan, creating ruts. But over time, the ruts will create nice, smooth, well-worn grooves, which become our habits. And if we spend enough time running our habits down the center of the track, over time, it will create in us character. And I wonder to myself, what are the rituals in my life that are ultimately shaping my loves? Have you thought about that? You know, recently I was, I was, uh, I was watching the movie A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. This is the one of Tom Hanks about the story of Mr. Rogers. Anyone seen A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood? I am shocked. I really am. Maybe I just need to get a life. I don't know. But I, I, in the last gathering, only two or three people had seen it. I recommend this movie. I really do. A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. If you have Netflix, go on Netflix first and watch the documentary of Mr. Rogers. But after that, go and watch this movie with Tom Hanks in it. I, I tell you, I was, I was deeply moved by this movie. I, I, I actually cried a like, teared up a little bit in the movie while I was watching. I was with my men's group, my men's discipleship group, so I didn't let on, you know. I just kind of like, hey, good, pass the popcorn. You know, but so anyway, but it was, it was deeply moving. And, and, I, and I was, I don't know, I, I, after the movie and I walked away and I was thinking to myself that night, I thought this. I thought, I want to become more and more like Mr. Rogers. Like, and I'm not talking the cardigan sweater and the sneakers, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about his personality and his character. Because here's two things I noted about Mr. Rogers that you discover in the film. First of all, when you were with Mr. Rogers, he treated you like you were the most important person in the world. And he believed it. In that moment, you were the most important person in the room. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that when he was with you, he gave you his full, undistracted attention. He was fully present in the moment, in every conversation. And I thought to myself, those are two rituals that I want to shape my love. I mean, I'm not always good at it. And I, I'm going to fail, I'm going to forget. You're going to be in a conversation with me, and I'm going to just second, I turn my phone. Okay, but, but let me just say, those are two things that I want to begin to put into practice. And I pray that those rituals will lead to habits, and those habits will begin to form into Christ-like character. Have you considered what rituals and what habits you might pursue to become more loving? And and if you thought about what rituals you're currently engaged in that are making you more unloving or perhaps eroding and destroying your character, it's through practice. Practice and presence, the presence of Jesus. Friends, God wants us to abound in love so that it produces in us Christ's character. And so may we seek his presence and may we practice love. Because here's what Paul says. He says that God wants to do this in us so that we will be pure and blameless for the day when Christ Jesus returns. God is inviting us to live the life of the future in the present. God's work is not yet complete, but one day, the last piece of the puzzle will be put into place. Jesus will come and he will fix everything. He will right all wrongs. He'll create a new heaven and a new earth. There will be more sickness, crying or death and we ourselves will be made anew, complete. And he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so until that day, may we live the life of the future in the presence. May we abound in love as his people. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton, and you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, It's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.